I mentioned that Tracy and I were coming home from vacation yesterday, and uh, early, uh, before we flew out of Florida, uh, early yesterday morning, Tracy got a phone call that uh, she had lost uh, a beloved uncle. An uncle of hers uh, died rather suddenly, not, not completely suddenly, but uh, rather suddenly, uh, he passed away yesterday morning. Uh, he died from uh, pulmonary fibrosis, which many of you will know is a condition that uh, causes your lungs to scar over the, t- the tissue, to scar over and to become hard, and it makes it impossible for you to breathe. Uh, well, in his case, and perhaps in most cases of pulmonary fibrosis, I'm not sure, um, he was otherwise really completely healthy. Uh, his body was strong, his mind was uh, completely alert. And he had the, the grace to be able to uh, know uh, that he was, in fact, dying and that he was dying very, very rapidly. Now, this gave him a grace gift that not a lot of us get, and that is that he was able to spend his last few days with his family uh, surrounding him, and he was able to interact with them and, and to have time alone with his wife and with his children and, and with his grandchildren and his brother uh, and his sisters. He was very alert and aware of what was happening. Um, he was able to participate even in the decision-making with the doctors as the time of his passing uh, got closer and closer. He was able to, to be aware of how close he was and even, as I said, participating in the decisions regarding the process of his dying. And yesterday morning around 625, he slipped out into eternity. And his family today, as you can imagine, uh, they are suffering a great loss. Now your family has suffered that exact same kind of loss. Every family has. My family has. Um, All of us have suffered the loss of someone we love or we have suffered in some other way. Some of you are suffering right now. It's absolutely true. There's some of you who are sitting in the room now, perhaps you're watching online, and you are right in the middle of a deep personal struggle of some sort. And if you're not currently in a struggle... You will be, eventually. We all will go through struggling again, suffering in some way. You know, it's it's a fundamental, undeniable fact of life that this life can be hard. It can be really, really hard. And that it often is filled with suffering. You might ask why. I mean, many people have asked why. Why does it have to be this way? Why does there have to be so much suffering in the world? Why do people have to get cancer and die? Why? Why is it that we have children's hospitals because children get tragically injured and children become terminally ill? Why do we live in a world where that's the case? Why do we live in a world where there are hurricanes and tornadoes that devastate property and destroy homes and livelihoods? Why do we live in a world where there's crime and where people are abused and mistreated? Why do these things happen? It's a good question, and there's an answer to the question. And in fact, I can give you the answer in a word. 
The reason that we live in a world where there is suffering is because of the fall. It is because we live in a world where we have fallen in sin and the result of our fallen condition is that suffering has flooded into the world that God has made. In fact, you know, the, the Bible is the, um, it is the narrative of the ages. The Bible tells us of the history of the ages. And if you were to take the entire Bible, all 66 books, and distill it down into four chapters, if you wanted to outline the Bible in sweeping strokes and only have four points in your outline, you could do it this way. The Bible tells the story in the first place of God's perfect creation. The Bible describes how God created this world. The second chapter of your outline would then be this. It would tell us about the tragic fall of God's created ones. God created us. He created all things that are. And then we, his people, rebelled against him and we fell. And because we fell, the third chapter of the book had to be written, and that would be the chapter that describes the, the uh, suffering that is the consequence of our fall. God created the world, we fell, and suffering ensued. But now there's a fourth chapter to the book, and that is that it is the chapter of God's rescue plan for his fallen ones. Now, this is the Bible in totality. God made the world, we fell in sin, suffering entered the world as a result of our sin, and now God wants to rescue us from our fallenness. And in fact, the good news of the gospel is that God has promised us another world, a world where there is in fact no suffering. And there's no sin, and there's no sickness, and there's no disease, and there's no cancer, and there's no tragedies. Because in that world, that world that the Bible calls heaven, we will live in a place restored, a place where he is restoring us to the perfection that we have lost in the fall. In fact, suffering is, if it's anything, it is evidence of the fact that we are not home yeah, right? We, we still live in this world. You know how I know it? Because I see suffering all around me. But the fact that we are promised a world where we can live without suffering is, is the hope of our hearts. We long for that life. Watch anybody suffering. Watch your loved ones go through hardship and distress and pain and difficulty. And you will see someone longing for a life where that suffering does not exist. We live our lives longing for the day when we no longer have to suffer. We cry out for that day. Oh Lord, how long until all of this suffering is over? And I would suggest to you that that, that cry for the, for the hope of heaven, that cry for a perfect world where we don't suffer any longer, that's crucial to our hope in this world. Because if we only have hope in this world, as Paul said, we would be of all men most miserable, but we hope for a land where there is no more suffering. Now listen, when we think about suffering and the fact that one day we will be in a land where there is no suffering, but for now we live in a land where it does 
exist, it reminds us of the fact that we need to understand suffering from a biblical perspective. In fact, write this phrase down, if you will. I'm going to tell you what it is in a second. But let's think for a moment about a theology of suffering. Theology meaning that I am, I am having a biblical view. I'm understanding God and his plan for suffering. When I have a proper theology of suffering, it will equip us to endure hardships with a right understanding of the nature of God and of his purpose in life's pain. I want to say that again. When we have a proper theology of suffering, then we can encounter suffering. We can step into the storms of suffering that inevitably will come, understanding who God is and responding to the suffering in a way that is filled with peace as, as opposed to a way that is filled with panic. I don't have to go into suffering panicking. I don't have to endure suffering kicking and screaming the whole way and fighting it the whole way. I can, if I have a right theology of suffering, I can understand the nature of God through suffering and I can see his purpose in it. Now, I believe that over the course of his life, Joseph developed a proper theology of suffering. In fact, if we could have visited Joseph in the last years of his life and asked him about his theology of suffering, I think he would have affirmed in three statements, three things that he knew to be true about suffering that he had learned over the course of, of the years of his life, which, by the way, is typically when we learn these things, right? you got to go through some things and have some life experience and, and gain some wisdom as we walk with God. And typically it's later in life that we begin to really understand these things. Here's what I think Joseph would say about his view, his theology of suffering, having gone through all the things that we're going to discuss today and in the weeks ahead. Write them down. Number one, I think that Joseph would say that in all of my suffering, God was with me. And that would be his first point of his understanding what suffering is all about. He would have said that even though life was hard and even though I was suffering greatly, I have come to understand that I was never alone, that God was with me. In fact, chapter 39 of Genesis and verse number two affirms that along with other verses in this, past, or in this text that uh, the Lord was with Joseph. That's the first thing he would have said, the Lord was with me. The second thing that Joseph would have said, the second affirmation in his theology of suffering would have been, he would have said, in all of my suffering, God was in control. Now, here's the thing. When we're suffering, suffering seems like chaos. It feels like things are out of control. But what Joseph would have affirmed is that, in truth, things weren't out of control at all. God was always in control. I'm going to read to you from Genesis 45 and verse number 8, where many years later, looking back on his suffering, here's what he says. So now it was not you that sent me here, but it was God. And God has made me a father to Pharaoh, and God has made me the Lord of all his house, and God has made me a ruler throughout all the land of Egypt. Joseph would have said, in all of my suffering, God was with me. In all of my suffering, God was in control. He brought me here. He made me that. He put me there. He arranged for this. God was in control the whole time. The third affirmation 
of Joseph's theology of suffering is this. He would have said, God was using my suffering. God was using my suffering for his glory. He was accomplishing a purpose for his glory. You see this in Genesis 45 and verse number 7. And God sent me before you to preserve you a posterity in the earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. So in his old age, Joseph would have said, look, I've been through hard times. I've been through suffering. I've endured some difficulties. But here's what I've learned, that I was never alone. God was always with me. He was always in control of my circumstances. And he was using that suffering to accomplish what he wanted to accomplish in my life. Now, Joseph's theology of suffering is a correct one. And we need to adopt his kind of view of suffering in our own lives when we endure hardship. So let's go to school on Joseph's life. Follow along as I read the text today, beginning in chapter 37 and verse number 25. Genesis 37, verse number 25 uh, says this. Let me find my place in the text. Here we go. Verse 25, and they, his brothers, sat down to eat bread. And they lifted up their eyes and looked, and behold, there was a company of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead. They had their camels, and they were bearing spices and balm and myrrh, and they were going to carry these things down to Egypt to sell them there. Verse 26, And Judah said unto his brothers, What profit is it if we slay our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him unto the Ishmaelites, and let not our hand be upon him, for he's our brother, he's our flesh." And his brethren were content with that. So then there passed by the Midianites, the merchantmen, and they drew Joseph, lifted him up out of the pit, and they sold Joseph to the Ishmaelites for 20 pieces of silver. And they, the Ishmaelites or the Midianites, and don't get confused by the different uh, designations, Midianites or Ishmaelites, it's, they're used interchangeably, same group, they brought Joseph into Egypt. Verse 29 says, And Reuben, the oldest brother, returned unto the pit. Now, Reuben wasn't around when they made the decision to sell him. We don't know where they were. He had uh, left the area. He comes back. Behold, verse 29 says, Joseph was not in the pit. And Reuben tore his clothes, and he returned to his brothers. And he said, The child is not there. And I, where shall I go? What am I going to do? Now, what's Reuben saying? Well, Reuben is the oldest son, and he knew that Joseph's welfare was his responsibility. You remember from last week that he had already convinced the brothers not to, uh, was trying to convince the brothers not to kill Joseph. And so he knows his, Joseph's welfare is his responsibility. His father will hold him responsible. He says, what am I going to do? Joseph is gone. Well, they obviously tell him what happens. Verse 31, they then conspire to make this plan. They took Joseph's coat and they killed a kid of the goats and they dipped the coat in the blood and they sent the coat of many colors and they brought it to their father and they said, we have found this. Do you know whether or not this is your son's coat of many colors? And he knew it. Jacob knew it. And he said, it is my son's coat. Surely an evil beast has devoured him. Joseph is without a doubt Torn to pieces. And Jacob rent his clothes and put sackcloth upon his loins, and he mourned for his son for many days. 
And all of his sons and all of his daughters rose up to comfort him. Now, by the way, this is the height of evil that these brothers would do this to Joseph but then perpetrate such a lie on their father and convince their father that Joseph was dead. It's the, the height of evil, but it's also the height of hypocrisy, isn't it? Because having brought this pain upon their father, they now come to their father to try to comfort him in the pain which they caused him. All his sons and daughters rise up and come to comfort him, but he won't be comforted. Verse number 35, he says, he refused to be comforted. He said, I will go down to my grave mourning. Uh, thus uh, his father wept for him. Verse 36, and the Midianites sold Joseph into Egypt unto Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh's and the captain of the guard. Turn one page to chapter 39. Look at verse 1 only. Chapter 39, verse 1 says, And Joseph was brought down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, he was the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, he bought him of the hands of the Ishmaelites, which had brought him down there. Let's talk about Joseph's suffering. Would you jot that down, in fact, just very simply, the suffering of Joseph? The suffering of Joseph. You know, we've talked about the fact that to suffer, we all know what it means. It means to endure some kind of difficulty, some kind of hardship, uh, to endure some kind of pain. And we all know that that is a common experience for all of us, but when we endure suffering personally, we don't think of it in generalities, right? When, when we're going through some hardship, when the difficulty is mine, when I'm enduring pain, I take little comfort from the fact that this is a shared experience for everybody. In the moments when we're suffering, our pain is very intimate, right? It's very personal. We feel it very, very deeply in our own lives. And when we talk about our suffering, we don't talk about it in general terms. I mean, if you're confiding in someone and you're sharing with them what's going on in your life, how you're suffering, you don't speak vaguely. You don't speak in generalities. You tell them what is happening to you. You know, counselors are accustomed to hearing the agonizing details, explicit details of the hardships of those that they are counseling. So as we think about Joseph's sufferings, let's don't talk in generalities. Let's get really specific. What are the ways in which Joseph was suffering. Well, write this down in the first place. Joseph, we know already, was sold into slavery. Now, this is, this is a very definite means of his enduring hardship or suffering or pain. He was sold into slavery. Uh, you know, last week we read about how that his father sent him to check on his brothers as they were at Shechem keeping the flocks. And when he approached their camp, even when he was a, a long way off, they knew it was him by that brightly colored robe that he was wearing, and they conspired together that they would kill him. And when he arrives, Reuben, having uh, convinced them to not kill him, they still have determined that they're going to throw him in a pit and leave him there. So imagine this moment. Joseph walks up to his brothers. Hey, guys, Dad sent me to check on you. And the first thing that happens is that they grab the kid, and they begin to rip that, that multicolored coat off of him. They, they rip his coat as they jerk it off of him. You can imagine they're rough handling him. 
You can imagine the cruelty with which they spoke to him. You think you're something. You're dad's favorite. You think you're going to rule over us. We'll tell you how it's going to be. They're abusing him, tossing him around. The text doesn't say it, so I don't know for certain, but it seems logical to me. There would have been some hitting. There would have been some fighting. There would have been some kicking. They abuse him verbally. They abuse him physically, and then they throw him in this water cistern, this empty water cistern, this pit in the desert. Now that's cruel enough, but look at what the Bible says in chapter 37 and verse number 25, that they, having thrown him into the pit, they sat down to eat their lunch. Now the text is specific to tell us there's no water in the pit. There's no food, there's no water in the pit. And so while he is there in the hot desert Son in this empty water cistern with no water in it, with no food to eat, his brothers sit around the lip, around the rim of this pit, and they break out their lunch boxes. They begin to pass around the bread. They begin to pass and pour the cruise of water, and they're drinking, and they're, they're, they're eating, and they're laughing while he's in the pit crying out, guys, don't do this. Let me out. And by the way, I'm not speculating when I say that he's in the pit crying, calling to them. The Bible tells us that's what he was doing. In fact, I'll show it to you. In Genesis 42, many years later, when they're confronted with Joseph, here's what the brothers say. They said one to another, surely we are being punished because of our brother. We saw his anguish when he pleaded with us, but we would not listen to him. That is why we are enduring this hardship, they say. No, he's crying out. His brothers throw him in the pit. And then Judah has this idea, verse number 26. What good does it do us to leave the kid in the pit? What, what, what benefit is it to us if we just leave him here? I've got a better idea. Let's sell him. And so the Bible says in verse number 25 that they pick him up out of the pit because there's a, a caravan coming along on its way to Egypt, a caravan of Ishmaelites, of Midianites, who are on their way to Egypt to sail their wares. Look at verse 25 and 26. They are coming down to Egypt, and they have with them, verse 25 says, their spices and their balm and their myrrh. Can't you see this? It reminds me of a, like a gypsy caravan where they'll open up their wagon, and they've got all of these things to sail. And so they've got their, their spices and their balms and their myrrh and, and whatever other trinkets they have. And the brothers of Joseph say, hey, would you like to add to your retail store a boy? Make a good slave down in Egypt. Somebody give you a good price for him. Why don't you buy him? They negotiate. They haggle. And they land on a price, 20 pieces of silver, which was the price of a young or a handicapped slave in those days. 20 pieces of silver they pay, and they put Joseph in chains, and they begin to lead him down to Egypt. Sold for a profit. Sold into slavery. Maybe you felt like you've suffered in that way at some point in your life. Maybe you're suffering that way now where someone, some institution, some person, some place has used you for everything they can get. They've wrung out of your life all the silver that they can get, all the labor they can get, all the love they can get. They've just wrung your life out 
cast you aside. Joseph knew exactly how that feels. You can imagine Joseph now in chains. Only hours earlier, he approached his brothers with his tunic, part of the family. Now the tunic is gone. His hands are bound, and he's being led in this caravan, stumbling through the desert. You can imagine as he's being led away, he's looking back, and his brothers are, there's your part, and there's your part, and they're going through their newfound windfall at his expense. And you know what Joseph knew at that moment if he didn't know anything else? He knew that his life had changed forever. Amen. Nothing would ever be the same again. In his book on suffering, uh, it's very simply titled Suffering. Paul David Tripp writes this. He says, the thing about suffering is that it quickly removes any grandiose ideas that we are in control. (laughs) And it does, doesn't it? Because if I were in control, I wouldn't be suffering. I would control my way out of the suffering. But when we suffer, we realize we are not in charge. He was sold as a slave. The second thing you should note about Joseph's suffering is that he was alone in a strange land where they spoke a foreign language. Alone in a strange land where they spoke a foreign language. Now, his brothers take their money, they hide it, and they begin to make their way back to their father with the sheep to tell the tale of the uh, finding of this bloodied coat. And and Joseph, after a couple of weeks, it would have been nearly 300-mile journey from Dothan down to Egypt. It would have been through the desert. It would have been at least a couple of weeks' journey all the way down to Egypt. And when he got there, he found himself in a place that he could have never imagined. He could have never conceived of such a place as Egypt. Remember who we're talking about, a 17-year-old boy who the totality of his life experience, the, the complete cultural exposure that he had ever had was among his own extended family. The biggest house he had ever seen was his daddy's Bedouin tent made of goat hair, goat skins. And now he's in Egypt. And in Egypt, he's seeing people like he's never seen before. Egypt was a melting pot of cultures. It was multi-ethnic and multiracial. And he's seeing people like he's never seen before. He's seeing places like he's never seen before. This is no tent in the desert, not even a village. This is a massive city with buildings and temples. And he's seeing Sights he's never seen before. Everything is different. He, he's smelling smells he's never smelled before. He's, he, he's hearing a language that he's never heard before. He doesn't understand what people are saying. He's seeing the worship of gods that he's never heard of before. He doesn't even understand when, they're, when, when they stand him up on the slave block and he's lying shoulder to shoulder with other young people and older people and people who have been bought and, and, and put in slavery and they're haggling prices over him. He doesn't even know what they're saying until somebody grabs him by the arm and shoves him toward Potiphar. And Potiphar begins to take him home to be his slave. I mean, he is a... He's a 17-year-old boy from the backwoods of nowhere. 
And now he's suddenly in this place where he doesn't understand the place. And he doesn't understand the language. And it has to be disorienting. And it must be terrifying. I know a little bit about this, just a little bit. Five years ago, Tracy and I found ourselves in our own Egypt. And we were carried there by a caravan, a caravan of doctor's visits and diagnoses that ultimately led us to our own new place where we didn't understand the language. They were talking about things that we never thought we would be talking about. Egypt, for us in that season, was Hope Women's Cancer Center. And it was terrifying. And it was disorienting. Now, praise the Lord, her uh, prognosis was wonderful and her outcome was better than we could have ever expected. Praise God. But here's what I know. A lot of people end up in that Egypt and their news is not so good. Because sometimes the prognosis is not good and sometimes it's terminal. We know what it is. Many of you know what it is to be in that kind of suffering. Now, Joseph suffered by being sold into slavery and he suffered by being taken down into Egypt. But I would be remiss if I didn't mention that not only did Joseph suffer, but Jacob suffered as well, didn't he? Jacob suffered horribly beginning in verse number 31 down through verse number 35. It speaks about this uh, concocted story that the brothers bring to Jacob. We found this coat. It's, they've ripped it to shreds. They've dipped it in animal blood. He has no way of knowing if it's human blood or animal blood, but he knows it's Joseph's, and it's covered in blood. He can only assume the worst. We found this, they say. Is it Joseph's? Yes, it is. Surely Joseph is dead. And the text goes on to tell us that he goes to his grave refusing to be comforted. Joseph suffered. He was bound he was, he was brought to Egypt. We'll see next week he was bound up in prison. He was bought by Potiphar. He's suffering. And Jacob, his father, is suffering. Suffering, well, there's enough of it to go around. Don't you agree? There's enough of it to go around. That's the suffering of Joseph. For just a minute, though, let me point out to you something that I think is incredibly interesting in this passage. Write it down. It is the silence of God. The silence of God. You know, um, you're, you're used to the fact that typically when I will say, write this down, like I said, write down the suffering of Joseph, and I said, you'll see that in chapter 37 in these verses, in chapter 39, verse 1. So I'll give you a point, and then I'll give you the verses, where the reference is. Well, I'm not going to give you a reference for this point, the silence of God. Why not? Because there is no reference to give you. Why? Because God is silent. <laughs> the point of this point is to show you that there is no point in the text at which God speaks. Because in all of Joseph's days of suffering and in all of Jacob's days of mourning, there was nothing. It was silent. You know, Joseph could have cried out with David, who would come many years later and write the Psalms, many of the Psalms of lament, one of which was Psalm 109, where in verse 1, David says, O God of my praise, be not silent. O God, speak. And I'm certain there were days when Joseph said, O God, speak to me. 
Why are you being so quiet? But in 20 years, God never spoke a word to alleviate Jacob's suffering. God never spoke a word to clarify uh, Joseph's situation. And God is the God who is the giver of dreams. Jacob had dreamed a dream that told him God's plan. Joseph had dreamed two dreams that showed him God's plan for his life. God could have at any point sent a dream to Jacob or Joseph and explained what was going on. He could have appeared to them himself. He could have sent an angel. He could have spoken from the clouds. God could have said, Jacob, my son, it's okay. Joseph is safe. I'll take you to him in a few years. Chill out. He didn't say it. He could have said to Joseph, Joseph, I've got a plan. It's important. Just hang with me. It's nothing. The absolute silence of God. You have to ask the question. It begs the question, why? Why is God sometimes, maybe we would say oftentimes, silent when we suffer? Why? Well, let's let's agree to two things. Okay, here's the first thing. Let's agree in the first place that God is not really silent, right? Because even though he may not be explaining to us why we're suffering, he is not silent because he has spoken. Somebody say amen. He's spoken through his word. So while I may not get clarity on my circumstances, I have the assurance of his word in my hands. So he's not really silent. He has spoken. The second thing I would encourage you in is when God seems silent, don't mistake his silence for inactivity or unconcern because he's always concerned. He ever cares and he is always active. But but that said, why does God seem so quiet so often when we suffer? I was reading an article about this this week, and I I was so encouraged by something I read, I thought, I can't say it any better. I'm just going to tell you what John Piper said about this. He, he, He said it beautifully when he said, deprivation in this regard, when we are deprived of hearing God's voice when we suffer, it draws out our desire all the more for him and for his power, his presence. He used this illustration. He said, why is water so much more satisfying when we're parched and thirsty? It's just as necessary for life when we're not that thirsty, but when we're parched and dry, water is the most satisfying thing in the world because the deprivation of water draws out my thirst for water as the deer pants for the water brooks. So my soul longs after you, O God. He says, why does food taste so good? When we're hungry, I can't tell you how many times I've sat at the dinner table digging into a meal that Tracy has prepared. I will say, this is the best meal you've ever cooked. It's wonderful. And do you know, every time she'll say, oh, you're just hungry. Well, I am, but it's the best meal you've ever cooked. Piper says that when we're deprived of food, then food tastes so much better when we get it. His point is this, that when God seems silent, when I'm suffering and I'm not hearing from the Lord, I am drawn all the more to long to hear from him. God is silent so that we might call out to him from our deepest desire. Well, that's the suffering of Joseph and the silence of God. Lastly, I want you to jot this down and then we're going to have the joy of baptizing these folks and That is that I want you to know that from Joseph we can learn 
to trust God in the subplots. We can learn, as we see Joseph's story, to trust God in the subplots. You know what a subplot is, don't you? A subplot is that that plot line in a drama which is not the main plot, the main story. It's not what's happening with the with the main actors on the, on the main stage or with the majority of the time given to its presentation. It's just this quiet, maybe unnoticed at the beginning, subplot. Probably play, being played by the supporting cast, not by the primary actors. It's not real obvious, but while everybody's watching this, there's this subplot developing over here. Do you know what you see in Joseph's story? If y'all are listening, shout Amen. You see the subplots. Because while everybody's watching Joseph in chains going down to Egypt, everybody's thinking about Joseph suffering and seeing his dad suffer. God is over here arranging everything to put Joseph exactly where he needs to be to make Joseph exactly the man that he needs for him to be so that at the right moment, the subplot becomes the main plot and Joseph steps into his purpose, which was created in his suffering. And so if I know, if I know that in all my suffering I'm never alone and that when my suffering seems to just be random chaos, it's not. God is in control. And when I know that in all my suffering God is working a purpose for his glory and that while I may not understand it right now, I can rest that in my pain and in my grief, and in my loss, and in my uncertainty, and in my hardship and distress, there is a God who's working in the subplots, and I can trust him to bring about his will for his glory. That theology of suffering will allow me to enter the dark cloud, not kicking and screaming, not angry at God, not throwing fits, but at peace, though I may be in pain, at peace. And it will allow me to come out on the other side of the cloud with victory because God was at work all the time.